you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I can search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. Oh, there is none, there is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. And I can search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host, Shantae Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. Listen, I want to express, first of all, thank you so very much for those of you who are listening, tuning in, following, sharing, hearting, liking, telling other people about this show. That is what makes the difference. We have over 2,000 plays on Spotify and other platforms, but we know for sure on Spotify. And we want to say, I want to say personally, thank you to those who are listening. Thank you to those who are commenting. Thank you for those who are taking time to dialogue. Thank you for those who are um, sharing feedback and sharing book recommendations and sharing videos and inboxing me videos and things that you think I would be interested in. And uh, all of those things make a difference. I am doing this ministry because God told me to do it. That's, that's the it. That's the reason. That's the end all. That is the be all. But I will say that in obeying and in following what God has been telling me to do with Daring Dialogue since 2016, that it continues to be a blessing. It continues to be a strength to my life personally. Um, And I hope that this time that we share, that we connect, that we talk has been empowering, has been inspiring, has been insightful, has made you want to be a better person has made you into a better person in some way, shape, or form, has made you want to read more, has made you want to dive in um, to the scriptures a little bit more, has made you want to improve yourself in some way, shape, or form. So that is why I am here. We're going to be, because this is Theology Thursday, we're going to be diving back into Esau Macaulay's work, Reading While Black, African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. Now, I will not be on on Friday. So I do want to read from Rest is Resistance, which is the book that we're normally reading from on Friday. Um, And so I do want to cover another one of her tenets. So we are not going to read as much as we would in Reading While Black. 
because I am going to add in today Rest is Resistance Reading by Tricia Hersey. One other thing before we get started, I was, as I was preparing for today's show, and unfortunately the video, the audio did not save onto Instagram on yesterday. So yesterday's video show is not posted here on Instagram because it saved with no sound. So we just threw out that video. But if you want to hear yesterday's broadcast, it is also on podcast. Our podcast is Daring Dialogues. All you have to do is look it up and you'll be able to easily find us on Spotify or Google Play. Um, But as I was preparing for today's session, um, this thought came to my mind and I was, you know, obviously checking to see is if I should say this or is it something that needs to be said or is it even necessary? I kind of go through that process before I start making announcements about something that is pressing on my heart because sometimes it may just be a, a note to self, right? It might be a note to soul, a note to self something to just be mindful of. But I do think that this is a um, a reminder for those of us who say that we are Christians and who are calling upon the name of Christ. There has been, and there'll probably continue to be until time immemorial, videos that are being released or have been released that involve the sexual activity of people of the cloth. Either that person has um, released it themselves or that person may be in some kind of dispute and so it gets released or it's being released to sort of out that person or publicly shame that person. Whatever the case may be, this is what I want you to know for those who say They name the name of Christ. If you are going around and requesting to see videos of other people's sexual activities because you want some kind of quote unquote proof that the person has done this or that this has actually happened and you're engaging in watching someone else's sexual activities, you, beloved, are engaging in voyeurism for number one and two, porneo for number two. And three, you are now become, especially if it is sexual sin, okay? And I'm talking to people from a Christian lens when I say this, you are partaking in someone else's sin. There's no other way around that. So, just understand that your desire to want to see someone else's sexual activities is putting you in connection with partaking in whatever they're doing. Now, you might not see anything wrong with that. And that will be between you and the divine creator. But I'm just telling you. This was a thought 
that came to my mind today and I was like, what? Because <laughs> I don't cover those kind of stories. I don't talk about them on my platform. Um, there are plenty of other people that do that and that, you know, report on it. But if you are a believer saying, I want to go see the sex tape. If you are a believer saying, I want to go see what someone else has done with someone else that's probably not their spouse. And even if it is their spouse, I want to insert myself in someone else's sexual activity by watching it. You are partaking in another man's issue. So if you're okay with that. I'll leave that between you and your creator, but I just want you to be aware of that. You're partaking in someone else's business and it's not as harmless to your soul as you think it is. It's not television. It's not acting. It's someone's soul exchange with another person that you have invited yourself into energetically. So I just want you to um, be aware of that. All right. Let's go and jump and dive into reading while black African-American biblical inter interpretation as an exercise in hope. We are at chapter three, Tired Feet, Rested Souls, the New Testament and the political witness of the church. My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. Mother Pollard. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Galatians 4:16. On April 12, 1963, eight clergy, two Methodist bishops, two Episcopal bishops, one Roman Catholic bishop, a rabbi, a Presbyterian, and a Baptist wrote a letter addressed to the citizens of Alabama. This was their second such proclamation. Their first, written nearly three months earlier, on January 16th, was named An Appeal for Law and Order and Common Sense. It called for an end to violence surrounding civil rights protests in Alabama and implored those on both sides of the divide regarding the civil rights of African Americans to trust the court system. Although it said that, quote, every human being is created in the image of God and is entitled to respect as a fellow human being, with all basic rights, privileges, and responsibilities which belong to humanity, unquote, it made no strong stand against segregation. It was the epitome of moderation. Some three months later, this group of eight composed another letter. This one contained a not-so-veiled criticism of Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Council, whom they characterized as outsider agitators whose actions did not further the cause of peace. 
They questioned the efficacy of the political witness of Reverend Dr. King and others. They pointed out the fact that, quote, such actions as incite to hatred and violence, however technically peaceful those actions may be, have not contributed to the resolution of our local problems. We do not believe that these days of new hope are days when extreme measures are justified in Birmingham. This criticism of King's actions and the black Christian tradition of protest that undergirded it came from something of a white Southern ecumenical consensus. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, Episcopalians, and Jewish leaders opposed King. What we know as the letter from a Birmingham jail comes as a response not just to eight clergy, but to a certain approach to religion that was fo focused more on law and order than the demands of the gospel. In his reply to these eight clergy, where he explains his reason for being in Birmingham, King said, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Nearly 60 years after the publication of this letter, the debate around the role of the church in the public square continues. Was King's mission to end segregation and create a just society at all analogous to the work of Paul and the prophets, or was it merely partisan politics? Was his public and consistent criticism of the political power structure of his day an element of his pastoral ministry or a distraction from it? For many black Christians, the answer to this question is self-evident. We have never had the luxury of separating our faith from political action. Due to the era into which it was born, the black church found it necessary to protest the policy put in place by the state. Slavery. When Frederick Douglass asked his famous question, what to a slave is the 4th of July? He didn't simply ask a question about the United States of America. He asked a question about American Christianity. He said, quote, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality are a hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, and impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. By highlighting the hypocrisy of religious celebrations of freedom while enslaving others, Douglas called upon American Christians to live out their faith by establishing a truly equal and free society. 
He argued that this country could make no claim to any form of greatness until she faced what she had done to black and brown bodies. Does this Bible, does the Bible support Douglas and Reverend Dr. King's assertions? More pointedly, what does the New Testament have to say about the political witness of the church in response to the oppressive tendencies of the state? This chapter begins with a criticism and moves to the testimonies of Jesus, Paul, and John. My point in this first section is plain enough. I want to show that if our whole political theology is built on faulty readings of 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 and Romans 13, 1-7, then we are doing a disservice to New Testament evidence of political criticism and protest. After this deconstructive work, I will move on to consider Jesus' discussion of Herod, Paul's dismissal of the entire social and political order, and John's depiction of Rome. I will close by calling Jesus back to the stage to speak to us about peacemaking. We will see that the enslaved and their descendants who took up the work of political action were tapping into an important element of the New Testament witness. So we are going to stop there today in this book. And let's see. Yep, I think we're going to stop there. All right, so I have read through just the very first section of Chapter 3, Tired Feet, Rested Souls, The New Testament and the Political Witness of the Church. And Esau McCauley is really just going to, he's setting the stage to really show us how the believers of the New Testament were involved in their own way in political awareness in political witness and political uprising. So next week, Thursday, as the Lord wills, we'll come back and we'll start jumping into the sections. But that was just the introduction. And good morning to those of you who are coming in. I know that IG is being very slow today in notifying people that I'm live. So just know that I'm going to be on at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and just pop on over here and see if you see me live. Um, I will not be on on tomorrow, which is why we're going to take the next part of our reading time today to read from Rest is Resistance, a manifesto, because I do want us to not get too far behind in reading this work. So in Rest and Resistance, a call for us to really um, reclaim our power through rest and using rest to resist systemic oppression, which in some ways ties along with what Esau Macaulay is saying here in Reading While Black. We looked at her first tenant, her first tenant for this call to rest. And that tenant was that rest is a form of resistance because it disrupts and pushes back against capitalism and white supremacy. Today, we're going to look at her second tenet. And her second tenet is, our bodies are a site of liberation. Some people don't think of their bodies as being the site of liberation. Some people don't really think of their bodies at all. Some people don't see their bodies as sacred. 
I don't know about you, but I see my body as sacred. So there are certain things that I'm not going to do in my body because I see my body as sacred. There are some certain things I'm not going to put in my body because I see my body as sacred. Not because just because it's quote unquote against the law to do, right? We know we have natural laws, civil laws, etc. But I have a view of my body wherein because I believe my body is sacred, there are certain things I'm not going to put in it. There are certain things I'm not going to put on it. There are certain things I'm not going to involve my body in because I view my body as sacred. Now, if you don't view your body as sacred, then that's your choice, right? We all have free will to treat our bodies as sacred or as, what's the other word I want to look for? Not ratchet, but the opposite of not being sacred, right? It's, I see the word, but I can't get it out of my, on my tongue for some reason. If we want to degrade our bodies, you have the right to do that. I wouldn't recommend it, but you have the right to do that, right? So let's look at her second tenet. Our bodies are a sight of liberation. For us to be more human, returning to our natural state before the lies, terror, and trauma of this system, to be who we were for the, before the terror of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy is the power of resting. To no longer be ravaged by this culture's incessant need to keep going no matter what to produce at all costs. This is why we rest. Grieving the reality of being manipulated to believe we are not enough, we are not that we are not divine, or that we are not valuable outside of our accomplishments and bank account, is a central part of our rest work. It is sad and disturbing. I only started to confront and acknowledge the grief present in me and so many others in 2015, when the foundation for the NAP ministry really began to take shape. I understand that many reading this book have never sat with the grief and pain associated with attaching your worth to productivity and money. This is very interesting because 2015 was right around the time that I realized this same kind of idea that people will really allow you to work yourself to death. And they will replace you within 24 hours because that is the nature of this system that we live in. It is a nature that consumes and a nature that will consume you if you do not put in your own boundaries for rest. If you do not put in your own boundaries for self-care. And it's not just one city or one state, it is the nature of the system of capitalism in which the United States runs on. This fact alone is enough reason to rest. But you cannot simply just tell someone who has been traumatized by capitalism since birth to consistently lay down and rest without addressing the reality of our brainwashing. When we finally wake up to the truth of what a machine level pace of labor has done to our physical bodies, our self-esteem, and our spirits, 
the unraveling begins. As I've counseled people who have an extreme desire to slow down and rest, I have witnessed the subtle and bold ways that grind culture has swallowed us whole. Being a parent has opened my eyes up to the ways grind culture successfully begins its socialization of fear and urgency. Even before my son was born, with medical, the medical industry was rushing him out of my womb. During my pregnancy, the doctor was obsessed with how large my son might possibly be. In my eighth month, their concern sent me to a specialist to receive an intensive ultrasound to rule out twins. I already knew I wasn't having twins and correctly predicted his gender. I knew he might be a larger baby because I myself am six feet tall and my entire family, including both parents, were over six feet tall. All the women in my family had larger babies. I shared this history with my doctor, but like many in the medical system, especially when it concerns black women, she didn't listen. On my last appointment, four days before his due date, she signaled that I would have to have a C-section because she was unsure I could deliver such a large baby. She also shared that the last larger baby she delivered had complications that she is now fighting in court because a lawsuit was filed. In her words, let's just get him out now. I was mortified and pleaded with her to let me try and labor. I told her that he would not be nine or 10 pounds like the scan showed. I responded with deep confidence. He will be eight pounds. I know this in my spirit. In a rushed and urgent tone, she said no, and I would be delivering that evening via C-section. I was crushed and went home crying as I prepared to make my way to the hospital to give birth. Once there, I had a successful C-section, and when they put him on the scale, he weighed eight pounds and zero ounces, exactly as I had predicted. The doctor was shocked and kept repeating, you knew. Now this story in and of itself just makes me angry and irate. <laughs> because number one, she probably didn't have to have a C-section, but I'll tell you some other things that doctors rush black women to. One of them is C-sections. The other one is hysterectomies. C-sections and hysterectomies. Even when there's nothing wrong with your uterus, black women are being rushed to hysterectomies. Ask me how I know. Let me continue. What struck me about this experience is the deep ways in which capitalism was given power to control and drive my son's entrance into the world. Grind culture has taken over every facet of our lives. The real fear of what could happen if we step into the unknown is crafted by capitalism and its cult of busyness and productivity. We are wrapped up in a web that feels inescapable and hopeless. Will you trust me and trust your divinity enough to believe it is indeed not hopeless? Can you trust even for a second that we can reside in a rested future? I ask for us to walk this road slowly together, lay down together and collectively care for each other in a way that makes rest possible. Fear, which is a function of grind culture, was able to drive the doctor's thinking, leaving my intuition ignored and the pain and disappointment of an unnecessary cesarean section. 
I can't tell you how many women I know who have told me they've had unnecessary C-sections. Because people don't understand. When people start cutting on you and opening you up, that's not good for your overall health. Now, I was told this by both of my grandmothers, one of whom was a midwife and, um, you know, she was not a licensed nurse because they weren't doing that back in her day when she initially got started. But she said, baby, (laughs) do whatever you can, as much as you possibly can, to not go under the knife multiple times. Do not allow people to be experimenting on your body, cutting on you and opening you up. Because anytime you do that, anytime you open up the interior of a human body, there is a risk for your immune system. And there is a risk for infections. And if you're having to do anesthesia, there is a risk that you might not wake up from anesthesia. So she said, as much as lies within you, if something is not necessary, if it's an unnecessary surgery, don't get it. If it ain't necessary and there are alternative methods, don't do the surgery. Don't have all of these times where you're allowing your body to be cut open and operated on if it's not necessary. Now, she said that decades ago. And what do we have today? We have a whole bunch of people participating in unnecessary surgeries. And what are we seeing around those unnecessary surgeries? We're seeing death. They went in for a routine cosmetic this or cosmetic that. So I'm I'm going to keep listening to my elders. I I can't speak for anybody else. But I'm going to keep on listening. So they ignored her intuition. The doctor wanted my son out immediately so that she could move on to her next patient without a lawsuit and extended time of allowing the labor process to begin naturally. Later, my son left the comfort of our slow-paced home into the public school system, and I began to watch slowly how his voice, connection to his body, and intuition were attacked. In elementary school, students were being trained to be workers who can follow orders, memorize facts, and be on time no matter what. Imagination and critical thinking skills were replaced with cookie-cutter learning and standardized testing. I would volunteer in my son's third grade classroom weekly and notice the young children being told, hold your pee. Bathroom break isn't for another 20 minutes. I watched in horror as an eight-year-old squirmed, attempting to wait the 20 minutes until he could allow his body to relieve itself. The teacher, obviously overwhelmed with a large classroom, continued to ignore his cues and he eventually used the bathroom on himself. 
I helped to take him to the bathroom and clean up and walked him to the office so his parents could be called to bring a change of clothes. Tie this to the Amazon workers who reported and showed by both photographs and video that Amazon workers had water bottles that they were peeing in because they didn't have time to break to use the restroom. Understand the connection there. As I explained to someone else last night, they were wondering why is America so behind in certain areas, especially math. There was a new article that just came out yesterday that talked about how the children can't do the math in classes because the teachers can't do the math. Uh-oh. Why is America so behind? Because American school system has been designed and was designed to push workers into an industrial revolutionized society. The way that American public school was set up, it was set up to train you to be a worker bee. That's why you have bells. That's why you have schedules. That's why you have breaks. <laughs> That's why you have a time to eat and a time to do this and a time to... It was to get your mind into the structure of an industrial revolutionary time of work. Well, guess what? America's structure for most public schools has not revamped that structure to make way for the technological revolution that we are in. So the framework by which our schools operate is still operating like we're preparing children for the 1930s instead of the 2030s. And the 2070s and the 2100s. Let me continue. This is the seminar that's not coming to anybody's school yet because people are just not ready to hear this truth. That's why I'm using my platform to tell the truth. This blatant disregard of his body and the unnecessary embarrassment he and other students suffer in public school systems begins the process of learning to ignore the needs of your body. Now, there are some schools, some school districts that have finally decided if a child has to go to the restroom, let them go. Why are we holding children to this ridiculous standard and causing these kinds of issues? But there are still some schools that do this, what she just um, described. The brainwashing starts. The removal of physical education. Physical education has been removed from a lot of schools. Children might get recess in early elementary, right? They might get 15 to 20 minutes a day of recess time. But even that has been removed from some schools, recess. And nap time has definitely been removed from most public schools. You might have children doing nap time in um, pre-K in early childhood centers. But by the time they get to kindergarten, they're not, they not getting no nap time. 
I remember in kindergarten, I had a nap time. We had a nap time in kindergarten when I was in kindergarten. There's no nap time in kindergarten. If you know of a school that has nap time in kindergarten, please send me that school because I want to applaud them. These things are more evidence of a culture unconcerned with space, connection, and slowing down. This ongoing socialization and manipulation by the systems then become internalized as we become the agents of grind culture. Many people believe grind culture is this pie-in-the-sky monster directing our every move, when in reality, we became grind culture. We are grind culture. Grind culture is our everyday behaviors, expectations, and engagements with each other and the world around us. I went to half-day kindergarten, so there was no nap time. Yes, and you know why some schools went to half a day of kindergarten? so they wouldn't have to do nap time. There are some schools that do two sets of kindergarten where you have a set of students that come in the morning and they leave by, I think, 12 or 1 o'clock. And then you have some schools that have students come after lunch and they stay to the end of the day. So sometimes the school could be avoiding doing nap time or sometimes they're avoiding feeding those children by having them come after lunchtime. Yep. We have been socialized, manipulated, and indoctrinated by everything in the culture to believe the lies of grind culture. In order for a capitalist system to thrive, our false, excuse me, our false beliefs in productivity and labor must remain. I'm going to say that again. In order for a capitalist system like America to survive, our false beliefs in productivity and labor must remain. We have internalized its teachings and become zombie-like in spirit and exhausted in body. So we push ourselves and then we push each other under the guise of being hyperproductive and efficient. And when we see somebody slowing down, resting, going at their own pace, it triggers us. And then we start attacking as a society that person. From a very young age, we begin the slow process of disconnecting our body's need to rest. And we are praised when we work ourselves to exhaustion. I'm going to say, especially if you do it in church. One more time. From a very young age, we begin the slow process of disconnecting our body's need to rest. Disconnecting from our body's need to rest. And we are praised when we work ourselves to exhaustion, especially in the religious arena. And when you refuse to work yourself to exhaustion for church, church organizations, church events, church people, they get upset. And I'm like, you can be upset all you want, but you're not going to kill me. <laughs> Sorry. Wrong person. 
Again, this ties back into our other book from yesterday called Boundaries. <laughs> Setting Boundaries and Finding Peace. We tell our children to, quote, stop being lazy when they aren't participating in work culture with the same intensity as we are. We lose empathy for ourselves first and push excessively. We become managers, teachers, and leaders who fall prey to the allure of a capitalist system and treat those we have the honor of working with as simple human machines. We become rigid and impatient when our checklist isn't completed to perfection. We become less human and less secure. We believe we are only meant to survive and not thrive. We see care as unnecessary and unimportant. We believe we don't really have to rest. We falsely believe hard work guarantees success in a capitalist system. I've been told this constantly for as long as I can remember. On nights when I work two jobs, still unable to pay my bills on time or save money, I continue to tell myself, burn the midnight oil, burn the midnight oil, keep working hard, go to college, find that third job and a side hustle. I clearly remember the moment it clicked for me how a capitalist, patriarchal, ableist, anti-black system could never make space for the success I wanted for myself. The success of grind culture props up centers and props up centers constant labor, material wealth, and overworking as a badge of honor. Let me say it again. Constant labor, material wealth, and overworking as a badge of honor. 99% of today's motivational speakers, especially in black culture, push labor 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 grind 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 hustle 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 and if you're not hustling something's wrong with you and if you're not hustling you're lazy material wealth coming as a result of this constant 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 labor that literally you'll be working yourself into not enjoying your material wealth because it will be spent restructuring your entire body from all the constant labor and grind and hustle, hustle, hustle that you did. And overworking as a badge of honor. Just pay attention. When you see a motivational speaker and you see their little videos and the little reels that they do, see if you can check off these three things. Constant labor, hustle, grind. Material wealth as being super important to everything else in life. And overworking as a badge of honor. Resting is about the beginning process of undoing trauma so that we can thrive and evolve back to our natural state, a state of ease and rest. We are meant to survive and ultimately thrive because we are divine. All of culture is in collaboration for us not to rest. This is something that I had to learn, and I hope that you learn it as well. We are in a culture that is designed for us not to rest, which is why we have to be even that much more intentional about finding spaces and places to rest. This includes K-12 through public education, higher education, faith and religious denominations, 
medical industry, non-for-profits, activist organizations, and corporations. She didn't leave anybody out. Even those who claim to be a part of the wellness industry are pushing, hustling, grinding, capitalism, girl boss. Y'all already know my thoughts on that. (laughs) Competition and co-opting the work of indigenous practices for clout and money. I believe academia is the headquarters for grind culture, and it is a full circle moment that the energy and idea for the NAP ministry came to me while I was suffering from exhaustion in a graduate school program. Our everyday behaviors and false beliefs about productivity drive us into behaving in a robotic, machine-like way. The way we hold ourselves and others to the lie of urgency is white supremacy culture and we will never be able to rest or be liberated from oppression while we are honoring and aligning with it. Liberation and oppression cannot occupy the same space. It's not possible. We must go slow and place intention at the forefront of this disruption. This work is not simply a reminder to rest, but a full interruption and turning toward a rested future. This is political work that is unafraid to step into the light of our dark shared history that is recreating itself through our individualistic and disconnected delusion of what is really happening to us when we do not rest deeply. Our liberation is deeply connected to the portal of healing we can tap into when we rest. Wherever our bodies are, we can find rest, ease, and liberation. Part of our decolonizing resides in deprogramming from our brainwashing about rest as our divine right. We are divine, our bodies are divine, and a site of liberation. Wherever our bodies are, we can find, snatch, and center rest. That was just tenant number two. And I'm here for it. Going back to rest is not a privilege. Rest is a human right. I don't have to earn rest. I don't have to earn rest. It's our birthright. It belongs to us. It is not an afterthought or a luxury you grant yourself after you have burned out from constant labor. It's a human right. All right. Again, for those of you coming coming in, excuse me, yesterday's broadcast did not save the volume on IG, so I had to delete it. Yesterday's broadcast is available by podcast. So we have been going back and forth with this. Some days my podcast does not save and IG works fine. Some days IG does not save or it doesn't save my sound and my podcast is fine. So I don't know what's going on in the background. I think I have a pretty good idea of what's happening in the background. Um, But I don't want to talk about it here. I just want you to know (laughs) that this is being recorded in other places so that we have some record of what we've talked about and what we shared on this platform. Today, I also have an additional camera that I'm using that is my own personal um, camera that is also capturing and documenting what I'm teaching today. Because again, streaming sites 
can't be trusted <laughs> with black people's content. I'm going to say it that way. So we've got to have all of these other ways in which we support what it is that we're doing. If you would like to join us on a regular basis and become a partner, you can join patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues. There are levels of joining, levels of sponsorship, and levels of monthly giving. That supports what we do here on this platform. It supports the research that I get to go do. It also supports um, sometimes the travel that I take in order to do stories and do research and present material on my platforms. And it also supports philanthropic work that we are involved in um, throughout the year. Every month we are giving to different organizations, both grassroots, local and global, as a part of what we do through Daring Dialogues. So all of the money that we take in, about 95% of that goes back out to help other people locally and globally. All right. If you would like to come on and join me in some dialogue and conversation and discussion around this topic, please click, click on the camera below. I'll be right back. I am going to turn off my other camera. And if you're listening by podcast, I want to thank you for your time and attention today. Be well and be light.